Hello and welcome to another episode of the Star Wars Saga Cast. My name is John Wilson and this is episode 29 of the show. This should be the part where I'm going to tell you which issue of Marvel's Star Wars comic we'll be talking about this month. And that would be it. We talked about the comic and we'd go about our business, except that I forgot that this is the month where another important branch of Star Wars storytelling was begun. And what I'm going to do is I want to see how it feels if I put it here in the same episode with the comic book, and rather instead of giving it its own episode. Not entirely sure how this is going to go as far as time-wise and smoothness goes, but my goal is to make it all be a happy and enjoyable episode. That branch of Star Wars storytelling is the newspaper strips which had their start on March 11th of 1979. Another thing that happened this month was that the Star Wars question and answer book about space was published. It was written by Dinah Moshe, and what it does is it's not even a Star Wars book so much as it's a Star Wars-themed book that discusses life on other planets, survival in outer space, astronomy, space exploration, astronautics, in a question-and-answer format. So they're using Star Wars imagery and Star Wars characters as a gateway to inform kids about space, which, you know what? I'm all about kids learning more about space. So that is pretty awesome. But as far as the Star Wars newspaper strip goes, it was a strip that ran both on Sundays and during the week. However, those two categories, the Sunday strip and the weekday strip, they did not connect. They were telling two different sagas. And so when it began on Sunday, March 11th, you had one story begun. And then the very next day, Monday, you had a very different story get started. And these two ran in parallel. Now, the story that began in the Sunday strips is known as the Constancia Affair. And there's no introduction. We see C-3PO. He's hidden deep within a secret rebel stronghold. And the artist who's doing this is Russ Manning. And basically, we have C-3PO standing in front of a giant rebel supercomputer to tell them about Luke Skywalker. The Rebel Alliance wants computer records about his character, and they have chosen C-3PO to do it. Now, personally, I don't think that, you know, verbal communication is the best way to store data. But hey, you know what? I'm not the one in charge of the rebel rebellion computers. So, you know, whatever. One interesting tidbit, though, is that whenever he mentions Luke Skywalker, the computer starts rambling off facts. And one of the things it says is that he was born of Master and Mistress Tan Skywalker. And I don't know if that just means that nobody bothered to look up his name. We knew his name, didn't we? In the, in the, I'm drawing a serious blank here. You'd think I'd be a better podcaster than this. Did we know that Luke Skywalker's father's name was Anakin in the original Star Wars film? Or was it just your father? Huh. Maybe it was just your father. Maybe we didn't find out about Anakin Skywalker until later. Maybe that was Return of the Jedi creation. Wow. Now I'm really, really confused. I want to go find that out. Okay. That's my homework for next time is to find out if we knew Darth Vader's real name or if we knew Luke's father's name in any of the adaptations or the film itself of Star Wars. Okay, moving along. C-3PO is talking to the computer and telling him about uh, Luke Skywalker's adventures and character. 
And the adventure that C-3PO chooses to tell about is whenever uh, it looks like it's a Y-Wing fighter is flying through space on the run from a Star Destroyer. And the Star Destroyer is totally flying upside down. That's a really neat drawing. Okay, and the Star Destroyer blasts the thing out of of the sky. Looks like there's several Star Destroyers here, but one of them is shooting at the ship and it zigs when it should have zagged. So it explodes in a fiery expanding gas and pieces of flotsam and jetsam two of which are the floating bodies of R2-D2 and C-3PO. The two droids are both tethered to a black box that has a detector inside, and when it sees that there are no spaceships nearby, it closes a switch, which reactivates both C-3PO and R2-D2. They realize where they are, that their entire ship has been blasted around them, they're left floating in space, and C-3PO begins to freak out. And that is all we get from the Sunday strips for the entire month of March. There are three installments, and we have C-3PO talking to a computer. They get blasted from a ship. They realize they're blasted from a ship, and that's all we get. The other story going on in March is the black and white daily strips. Now, these are published Monday through Saturday. And I'm just going to take a pause to uh, talk about one of the other shows that I have done in the past, which is Golden Age Superman. Superman had his start in the comic books beginning in June of 1938. We'll cover date, June of 1938. Action Comics 1 came out in April or May of that year. But that's not where he was supposed to end up. Siegel and Schuster shopped that character around to all these different newspapers because in the 30s, if you wanted to draw comic strips, newspapers were the place to do it because everybody bought newspapers and you could make a lot of money that way. The whole comic book concept was still really, really new in 1938 and comic strip artists didn't want to do it. But they didn't have any success getting it shot to newspapers. They got it published in Action Comics. And then about, oh, nine months later, in February of 1940, they finally got Superman published in newspaper strips. And it began as a daily strip only for a while and then eventually went to Sundays as well. But what happened was you had this format where... Superman stories did, were not limited to a given story length. They could go on for as little or as much time as the writers had story for. And they were able to explore a lot of ideas. A lot of the Superman mythology that we think about as being Superman was actually introduced in the newspaper strips or on the radio show before it ever saw its place in the comics. Uh, Bizarro had his first place in the newspaper strips. Perry White had his first appearance in the newspaper strips. Uh, Lots of things happened there. The name Daily Planet first appeared in the newspaper strips. So the newspaper strips were a great place to tell stories. And I'm really I'm going to be really curious to see what kinds of things the Star Wars newspaper strips are doing. So let's look and see this. The daily story they're running is called Gambler's World. As the story opens, there's this huge fight going on between several Star Destroyers of the Empire and several ships of the Rebel fleet. However, the Rebel forces begin to fall back, and so the Star Destroyer captain requests permission to continue. The request is relayed to the Admiral in charge, and the Admiral wants to check with Lord Vader. So as Lord Vader is thinking about it, he's called away on an urgent call, and everyone's left wondering what's going on because they have to decide if they're going to go after the Rebels, they need to do it now before the Rebels completely disappear. However, the TA checks alert is buzzing. And that's something he pays a strict attention to. And I think it's a kind of amusing because the THX alert is probably either an a intentional nod 
back to THX 1138, the George Lucas science fiction film from before Star Wars, or it's just a rehash of those three letters as they were used in the film. Either way, someone's definitely playing a nod back to some sort of reference. What the THX signal is, Darth Vader goes into a secret room and this sort of holographic image shows up. It reminds me of whatever he's talking to the Emperor in Empire Strikes Back. But this is just a shadowy figure. There's no face. Uh, there's a star field in the place where the shadow body is. Darth Vader addresses this person as Black Hole and it's some sort of spy network. He informs Darth Vader that the rebel plans are currently to constantly fall back and lose to the Empire. They're not going to try to win any fights while they go and recruit rebels on other planets. Darth Vader orders Black Hole to go and capture some of these rebels, take them alive without hinting that the Empire is involved, which means that Black Hole is not an obvious Imperial person. And Black Hole says that he'll begin on Vorzid 5, which is known as the Gambler's World, because Luke Skywalker and Princess Leia of Alderaan were ordered to disrupt Imperial operations there. See that they do not succeed, Black Hole. Now, we don't really get any hint of recognition from Darth Vader at the name Luke Skywalker, but the word Skywalker is there. And so if we're going to take all of Star Wars continuity as a thing, then Darth Vader should, if he had never heard the name Luke Skywalker before, he would have a reaction to it. But since he doesn't, I'm assuming he knows the name Luke Skywalker. So this story happens sometime after the fact when Darth Vader learns that Luke Skywalker exists. Be that as it may, the strip gen changes directions and we meet up with C-3PO, Princess Leia, and Luke on an Imperial ship heading toward Vorzid 5. They call it Gambler's World 3PO, a planet with no limit where anything goes. And it's all controlled by the Emperor for his profit, Luke. So this is... It it's kind of reminds me of the wheel and the fact that it's like a gambling den, but rather than this one being an isolated place that pays tribute to the Empire to keep them off their doorstep, this one is all completely controlled by the Empire. Luke and Leia are feeling a certain amount of moral outrage that so much of the money is from the galaxy is being drained through this uh, gambling den into the pockets of the empire. I'm not sure if that's intended to be a commentary on actual gambling or not. This is 1979. Um, so I really just don't know what the, the zeitgeist was about gambling at that time. But as much as I hate space travel, sir, I'm not sure we should land on that planet, but land they do. Once they land on the planet, they don't have someone that they're going to go contact they just know that the Empire probably knows that they're there. Word of their arrival has gotten about and they wait for the person to contact them. Now, the art in this is rather well done. There's a lot of detail. Things look really good. I will say, though, that the faces on Luke Skywalker and Leia are well executed. They look very human, but they also look about 14. Um, these look like two kids walking around. They're very well-drawn kids. Russ Manning has a great eye, eye for, for the human form and for you know comic book art. It's just a bit young. There's much ado made about the dangerousness of this place. There's even a random side panel of somebody getting attacked by a man with a knife just in the shadow for no reason while the uh, our heroes drive by in a taxi. 
they want c 3 and R2-D2 to watch their backs. But when they get to a casino, the person at the door says that the mechanical assistants must stay outside. No patrons are allowed, that sort of thing. So, yeah, um, it's an interesting start to a story. This does not move at nearly as much of a pace as the Superman strip does. Part of that is because there are only two or three panels on a strip. It's not a very wide space that they use to um, to tell their story. So there's not a whole lot of room for story movement each day. But what I plan to do, and please write in your um, emails to see if this is an okay idea. What I plan to do is at the beginning of each episode, going forward, before I talk about the comic of the month, I'm going to talk about the Sunday and daily strips of the month. It will probably be rather short. It'll probably be just a little bit of story beats just to see what's going on. We'll kind of have the serial feel of the strips rather than take them all in a big chunk. If we took them all in a big chunk, my concern is that we would lose the feel of what was being told when as far as the stories go. And that's kind of part of what I want with this podcast is to feel the stories as they're coming out. Uh, so let me know what you think. Please write an email. Next episode is feedback episode. So you have time to do that. And now we are going to take our look at star Wars issue number 24 star Wars issue 24 had been reprinted already. I say reprinted, I guess the initial printing was in star Wars weekly a, a month or two back whenever they ran out of installments of the wheel saga. So they printed issue 24 because it was in the drawer. The Star Wars Weekly comic has had to take a month off for the same reason. They ran out of new material to publish. And so this month, beginning with March 14th, they resume their weekly schedule with a reprint of issue 26, which actually wasn't published in the U.S. until two months from now. So they're again at the very, very front edge of Marvel's publishing schedule, and they don't have enough material to keep on going. So after issue 55 and 56 reprint the two halves of our issue 26 issue 57 of star Wars weekly begins the three part reprinting of pizzazz issues 10 through 16. So issues 57, 58 and 59 will reprint the star Wars comic strips from those seven issues. And so that's what we're going to see over the next few weeks. Issue 57, the first part of those reprints happened in March and the next two will happen next month. The big question is, what are they going to do whenever they run out of story there as well? Because remember, the pizzazz strips didn't finish the story. They left us hanging on a cliffhanger. Well, we'll find that out in two episodes time from now, whenever we get to next month's stories. This episode, however, is concerned with Star Wars issue 24. And on the cover, we see a man with white hair and a white beard in a long flowing robe holding a lightsaber with some sort of humanoid droid behind him holding off a whole bunch of attackers. Now, an all new untold tale, Ben Kenobi fights alone. In the bottom caption says Silent Drifting, which is also the title for this episode. Long ago, in a galaxy far, far away, there exists a state of cosmic civil war. A brave alliance of underground freedom fighters has challenged the tyranny and oppression of the awesome Galactic Empire. This is their story. Stan Lee presents Star Wars, the greatest space fantasy of all. Continuing the saga begun in the film by George Lucas, released by 20th Century Fox. And this issue 
being a standalone issue is actually written by a guest writer. Mary Jo Duffy came in and did the script. And I believe that means that she is our first female Star Wars scribe, Mary Jo Duffy. Carmen Infantino, however, is staying on art chores. Bob Viacek is helping him with that. R. Parker is doing the letters. P. Goldberg is doing the colors. A. Goodwin is the editor. So Archie Goodwin, even though he's not writing this, he does have his hand in the pot with Jim Shooter being the editor-in-chief. Dropping out of hyperspace to make minor repairs, the Millennium Falcon has run right into trouble. Now, there's a note here that this story takes place after the events in Star Wars 15. Star Wars 15 wrapped up the story of Drexel, the water world, and Crimson Jack, and poor love-struck Jolly, whose unrequited love never got, well, requited. And, you know, it, it occurs to me that she was always talking about getting kissed and how Han Solo might be good at kissing and how he always wanted, she always wanted to kiss, and she, she, she got one. Um... After she was dead. It's kind of weird now that I think about it it's off the top of my head. But anyways, we're well past that now. So after they left Drexel, but before they got to the wheel station, we have them flying and running into a bunch of TIE fighters. Seeing the trouble, they don't have a chance to get back into hyperspace to make the calculations and everything before getting flagged by a TIE fighter. So they have to do their best to fight back. But one of the TIE fighters does land a hit and a weakness in the shields, which knocks the Millennium Falcon on its butt. The two Imperial ships circle the wounded freighter like vultures until it fires off two of its guns right at the fighters, blowing them up. Great shooting, kid. They never knew what hit them. Turns out their being dead in the water was a bit of a lure to get them to come closer. They faked some of the damage from the TIE fighter shot. And the awesome trick they pulled brings to mind a story that Leia heard from her father about Obi-Wan Kenobi, which she then decides to tell to Luke. Now, before I go on with that story, I just want to talk about the art here. Carmen Infantino draws very angular people. And there is a very well-detailed, full-on shot of Leia Organa. And I just have to say, she looks kind of evil. <laughs> and if you compare this facial shot of her with the one in the newspaper strips, yes, you can probably tell they're supposed to be the same person, but they don't look at all alike. It's very, very strange. Carmen Infantino kind of draws an uh, an, an evil Princess Leia. She has like these arched eyebrows and a very sinister look to her. She does not look very nice. But then again, in the first film, she wasn't very nice. So maybe that's what that's all about. The story Leia tells happens back in the days of the Old Republic, before the Empire, when space was free to any ships that passed by, so long as they traveled through civilized systems. Maybe a, a, a rose-tinted view of the past, but hey, we'll go with it. There was a pleasure cruiser full of all kinds of people, senators, planetary leaders, criminals who were trying to keep a low profile, and even one Jedi Knight riding the ship only because it happens to be going toward his destination. And this is a young Obi-Wan Kenobi. Now, a comment on Jedi fashion. When we saw Obi-Wan Kenobi in Star Wars, he was wearing robes, a big brown robe he had a white tunic on underneath it and something darker underneath that and we all just figured that was probably some sort of desert clothing but then we find out in the prequels that that's pretty much what all the jedi wore large brown robe and a white tunic underneath and i always found that just a little bit odd 
especially when it comes to the fact that that means Obi-Wan Kenobi was probably wearing the same clothes on Tatooine for 20 years. And that's just a little bit gross. In any case, what we have here is him wearing a black jumpsuit. Very much what you might think that a sleek, smooth, confident in his place in life, space man of the late 1970s would wear. He has a very broad white belt with a, a holster on it for his lightsaber. He has white boots that go up his, th- uh, his calves. He has white gloves. He looks very, very chic. And in the bar of this pleasure cruiser, he meets 6BRKO, a protocol droid who is on his way to enter service with Prince Bail Organa. Now, if this droid is not in service to someone, why is it turned on? Now, I'm sure that comment sort of goes in line with the racism against droids that we see in Star Wars. But seriously, if droids exist to serve other people, why is this thing just walking around turned on? In fact, why were all those droids in the Jawa ship left turned on? How come they weren't switched off? Huh. Um kind of confused about that i would think if this is a robot they would turn it off and stick it in a closet somewhere deliver it to bail organa bail organa flicks the switch and ta-da you know you have your computer but but no oh but you know what now i get a big old answer to my question so this this just goes into why i should always read what i'm talking about before i start talking i am sorry to impose on you sir but most people don't like it when mechanicals travel alone they don't know whether to treat us as passengers or luggage captain quasar felt that since you were traveling to alderaan so cheaply you might consent to act as my owner Obi-Wan Kenobi makes a comment that is very interesting in light of other things we know, based on the prequels. I have never owned a living creature in my life, and I don't intend to start now. But if it's a traveling companion you want, you're welcome to share my cabin. One of the other drinkers who has a bit of a rat face says, Hey, what's that thing doing here? Calls Obi-Wan a droid lover and says it doesn't want their kind mixing with people. So, more droid racism which I'm guessing is we're just going to see as typical Star Wars, the galaxy over. The rat-faced man decides to attack Kenobi from behind, uh, but Kenobi calmly lowers his hand to the pommel of his hilt, and without taking it out of the holster slash scabbard, or whatever you want to call it, he just rotates it so that the bottom, the, the, the live end of it, points backward, flicks the switch, and the lightsaber blade comes out as the man is running toward it. Since the blade is sticking out Kenobi's back, he impales himself on it. And that's a pretty awesome way for a lousy person to die. I think it's pretty neat. Observing Obi-Wan's handiwork is one of those criminals who likes to keep a low profile, but he does call Obi-Wan Kenobi over, offers him a drink. Obi-Wan Kenobi has no interest in addictive stimulants, probably doesn't care much for death sticks either. And whenever the person, Mr. Augustus Trill, offers Obi-Wan Kenobi, I should call him something besides Obi-Wan Kenobi, that's like six syllables, it's kind of hard to say. Whenever Trill offers Kenobi something along the lines of a partnership with his business ventures because he thinks that Kenobi might be, you know, a talent worth having, Kenobi puts him off and says he has no business for dealing in stolen goods, political betrayals, or slavery. He then takes RKO back to his quarters and asks about his good friend, Bale. Now, when he mentions that Bale is his old friend... We know that they knew each other because in the Star Wars film, Leia tells us, General Kenobi, you served with my father during the Clone Wars. So my question is this. 
have the Clone Wars already happened in this person's mind? And this is after the Clone Wars, during the days when the Republic was still there? I know that they're trying to have to kind of feel their way out on that timeline. And in the 70s, they really haven't done anything to establish how all that stuff works yet. We'll get some of that lined out for us at Heir to the Empire when we get to that book in the 90s. But this is their first attempts to sort of reference that. Now, all he does is mention Bail Organa. I'm probably reading too much into it. It's possible that the writer thinks that since they served together in the Clone Wars, they've known each other forever. But in any case, it just it was one of those things that kind of made me start thinking, hmm... A few hours later, General Kenobi is called to the bridge. See, what's going on is the Republic ship is going through a sort of hostile area known as the Mersan Asteroid Belt. The Mersans don't like the Republic, and so the Republic ship is, has depowered all of its systems, and they're floating through the Asteroid Belt along with the asteroids, just letting inertia and gravitational orbiting carry them around to the opposite side so they can get out. But then some Mersan ships start running, flying by them, and they're not sure if they've been detected. But the Mersans are slavers, and there are four of their ships, so it's a very real danger they don't want to be detected, because this is just a pleasure cruiser. But those four ships do swing around for the attack, and Kenobi thinks that they've done so because of getting a signal from within this ship. The captain of the vessel turns over command to Kenobi, because after all, he's just a peacetime spaceman, doesn't know anything about warfare, so he asks the general to take command. <laughs> Kenobi's first question is, what are your armaments? And the guy says, Arm you must be joking, man. This is a pleasure cruiser. One that carries a number of important dignitaries and costly stores. You must have some defenses. Only two standard energy cannons. But against four ordinary scout ships, that may just be enough. Under the command of General Kenobi, they do succeed in taking out four of the ships. And then the last move to take out the last two ships is the one that Leia was talking about was similar to what Han and Luke had done. He shoots two ships in opposite directions at the same time. They go back on silent running, and now it's time to find out who sent that signal. Down in the passenger section, it seems that a mob has formed, because everybody knows about Trill and how he's a slaver. So they've all thought that maybe he has contacted the Mersons. But Kenobi does try to calm them down. Then one of the aliens says, wait, I see it all now. This afternoon I overheard Trill offering Kenobi a partnership. They're in this together. And now the mob turns on Trill and Kenobi together. As Kenobi is backing away from the group, he passes a machine that was mentioned earlier in the story that Trill owns that ferments juice to particular tastes, basically on command. And it has microwave emissions. And the microwave emissions were actually what were being picked up by the Mersons. It was not any deliberate signal. Kenobi slashes the machine to pieces and all the Mersan ships who were flying around looking for the source of the signal all fly away and everybody's safe. Um, microwave emissions? Really? I mean... Yeah, microwaves were kind of new in 1979, and maybe there's some environmental concerns with them. I think there are environmental concerns with them now against some pe with some people. I don't know. I have heard people say, don't stand too close to the microwave while it's on. It could kill you. I have no idea how much truth there is in all that. But it's kind of weird that he's using that. I, I don't know. I don't know. Anyways, at the end of the day, Obi-Wan Kenobi has saved the crew saved the planet, saved the galaxy, even saved my faith in all of humanity. So, yes, 
That's the end of the story that Leia is telling to Luke. Luke's very happy to have been hearing a story about Ben again. And Han makes a comment about, even if you did jazz up the story with all that hocus pocus about the Force. Because um, that's what Han does. He makes comments about the Force. I'm, I hope that he doesn't. <laughs> I know that in the film he makes this, story, this statement about how he doesn't really believe in the Force. But I don't want that to be like a running gag with him. Like, you know... I've got a bad feeling about this and it's not my fault. And just some of the other things that are said by Han Solo. I'm hoping that the comics don't make him uh, throwing, you know, pokes at the force as being a thing for him. I don't want that. Happily, this is the first one and we'll just hope that it's the last. Well, theoretically, they then keep on flying off and eventually land on the wheel and have all of that adventure. But next issue, we pick up on our regular storyline and the siege at Yavin which we will talk about in two episodes time because next episode is episode 30 and that's going to be a feedback episode. So if you have been wanting to send your emails or iTunes reviews, please do so now. The email address is coming in just a moment and I'm going to have a couple announcements about the uh, direction of the show for the next month or so. And I, I, and I even have a little item that just came in the mail today that I'll be talking about next time as well. So do please be here for episode 30. Thank you very much for listening. If you want to send emails, I'll read emails on the air and special email episodes. You can send those to the Star Wars Saga cast at gmail.com. If you just happen across this episode somewhere randomly, more episodes will be found at the Star Wars Saga cast.com or on iTunes under the Star Wars Saga cast. So thank you very much for listening. And until next time, my name is John Wilson. Thank you very much for listening to the Star Wars Saga cast and good night.